Okay, we are in Bible survey. The point of surveying the Bible is to help you understand Scripture better when you read it, or when you hear it preached, or when you're just studying, maybe in a Bible study, or maybe you're going to teach, going to do a Bible study with someone else. You kind of need to know what the book is about. You need to know who wrote it. You need to know when it was written, why it was written, what's the general outline. Those are important things. And this might not be, to some people, this might not be as exciting as systematic theology. You know, if you were in my systematic theology class, I mean, we were just touching on some hot-button issues. And it, it was a lot of application into our thinking, into our living. Well, the Bible has all that, of course, but we just don't have time to go deep on any of those subjects. And so we're going to cover a few interpretive issues for each book. But in general, it's a general survey, skimming the tops of the mountain points. And I'll stop along the way and mention theological things and application and whatnot, and some hermeneutics at times. But it's important to get a good overview of the Bible. At some point in your Christian life, you should get an overview of the Bible, and you should be reading through the Bible regularly throughout your Christian life. As I said last week in the sermon, there's too many Christians who haven't read all Scripture. So it's important that we do read the book given for us, to us. So let me open in prayer. We'll finish Second Kings and start... Hopefully, and get all of uh, First Chronicles, Lord willing, done today as well. Lord, we are blessed to have your word. Your, your precious word is given to us so that we would know you, so that we would know how to be saved, and we would know how to be sanctified. As we study the Old Testament, help us to learn the lessons we need to learn, lessons of what not to do, and how so many men before have, have failed, and, and lessons of how to live a godly life and lessons of who you are, God, and how we might live before you and glorify you and point people to you. So Lord, let your Spirit work through us today as we study these books. Remind us over and over how important they are to us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You might have to remind me how far we got. So I know we made it through most of it here. We get key passages? Key people. Who are the key people in 2 Kings? All right, well, Josiah is a good king. Really one of the best. He was the 16th king of Judah. Judah's a southern kingdom. He became king at eight years old, so really young. And he returned to obeying the law. Remember this? I always like to show you this. I like this from the ESV study Bible here. Red is a bad Red is a king who did not destroy the high places. The ones in red did not obey the Lord. They let idolatry happen, and they worshipped idols themselves often. So the northern kingdom, Israel, after the split, the north is called Israel, the south is called Judah. There's no blue. Blue is a good king. Blue is a good king because he destroys the high places. He does not permit idolatry, and he returns to the true worship of God. He returns to the Bible. There's no blue kings in the north. They went, the very first king of the north uh, went into idolatry and everyone followed afterwards. There's only one brown which is sort of mixed. He did some good things. He did some bad things. Jehu. Now in the south though, we have three in Second Kings. Really two in Second Kings because Jehoshaphat's in First Kings. So two that are good kings. And Josiah is the last good king. He's the 16th in the line. And 
he does a lot of good things. Remember, he's the guy we read about last week who not only destroys the high places of worship, he destroys the altars, he destroys the Asherah poles, he destroys all the false priests, the, the idol-worshiping priests. He digs up the bones of the dead priests and puts them all in the big pile and burns them all. He was ready to wipe out all forms of idolatry in the land. Elisha, this is the successor to Elijah, and he heals and floats an axe head. We looked at that last week as well. He was a miracle worker, but primarily he was a prophet of God. Prophets of God point people back to God's word. So remember, prophets don't just tell you what's coming in the future. They also, their main job really was to point people back to the law in the Old Testament. Remember the covenant, Israel. And so prophets were pointing people back, return to the Lord, quit worshiping the Baals, the idols, go back to the Lord your God. But they would do miracles to confirm their ministry, and they would also speak of what was to come. Either judgment, if you don't turn back, you will be judged. And they would also speak of a restoration. If you do turn away, then God will restore his people someday. That's going to become more and more prominent as we get into the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah in the future. Uh, Naaman, Naaman's the captain of an enemy army, and he's a great warrior. He has leprosy, and he's healed by bathing in the Jordan River seven times. Elisha says, go get in the river seven times, the Jordan River. And he says, it's not, not a river good enough in my homeland, up in, up in the Syria country. And finally, the, a little girl convinces him to do it. So he does it and he's healed. And he becomes a worshiper of God. And he has to go back to his homeland and figure out how does he worship God amidst a pagan king in a pagan country. So I encourage you to read those. We don't have time to cover them all in class, but those are the main characters of Second Kings. Helpful resources. Helpful resources. Uh, we have First and Second Kings commentary by Paul House. I've mentioned many times this series. If you're studying in detail an Old Testament book, I really recommend the New American Commentary. As much as I've recommended this, we should just get a set in the bookstore, huh? Uh, New American Commentary. And then we have our friend once again, his last commentary that he's, he's published on this, uh, Del Ralph Davis. Remember he did uh, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First Kings, and he also has one on Second Kings. The Power and the Fury. These are more readable. These are more accessible. They don't get into all the Hebrew so much. Uh, these are his sermons printed. Okay, the only selected interpretive issue that we're looking at today, and there's a lot of minor ones here, but the, the major one is the double portion of your spirit. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 2. And so on your handout, You'll see how many do we have there. Six choices for what is the double portion of your spirit. 2 Kings 2, 1 through 14. So Elijah is about to be taken up. He's about to go and be with God. His time is up. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Remember, Elisha is, has already been commissioned because God told Elijah to go, to go throw his mantle over 
we didn't read that, but if you were tracking with First and Second Kings, Elisha's in the field. He's a plowboy working on his parents' property. Elijah runs up, just kind of throws his mantle, his coat over Elisha. And, you know, there's this big surprise and they talk about what's going on. Elijah has chosen him to be the successor. But here's a little test. He says, I'm going to go on. You stay here. But Elisha knows that at any moment God's going to take him up. So he says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets, sons of the prophets are the group of prophets. The, the prophets have a school. They have a group of guys that hang out and prophesy. And they stay together because they're being persecuted by the northern king. Then when the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elisha said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But Elisha says back to him, because he's not going to leave his master, he says, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And Elisha answered, Yes, I know. Be still. So, you know, quit, quit getting worked up. I already know this. I've heard it many times by the prophets already. Then Elisha said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And Elisha says back, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. So these two prophetic leaders go down to the river and some men come out from Jericho to see what's going to happen. They're going to be witnesses. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters. So he takes off his long mantle, his long jacket, folds it up and he hits the waters. The waters divide here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. So this is a miraculous event meant to confirm that this is truly God's prophet. Of course, they already knew that, but once again confirms that this is truly a man working with God's power. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken up, before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So there's the interpretive issue. What is it? Okay, let's keep reading. As they were going along and, and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Again, what's that last miracle about? Now it confirms that Elisha is the true prophet of God. Elijah was the head prophet at the time. He's taken up. He is, he is with God. It's now passed on to Elisha. Same exact miracles confirmed. He hits the water with the mantle. It splits. He walks across. Everybody's seeing that that's there. They recognize this is 
the next leader of the prophets. We don't need to, to question that. So what is the double portion that he asked for? Well, a, a common charismatic view is that's a double portion of the Holy Spirit. It's a double portion of the Holy Spirit. So you, you can pull up videos, just type in Benny Hinn, double portion. And he will go around and he'll say, double portion, and he'll you know, hit the crowd and they'll all fall down. And he's supposedly sending out a double portion of the Holy Spirit. We'll just set, we'll just set Benny Hinn aside and not, not go into that right now. But is that what's being talked about here? Whose, whose spirit is he saying? I request a double portion of what? You guys catch that? Your spirit, right? Whose spirit? Elijah. He wants a, what verse was that? Nine? Yeah, nine. Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So there's nowhere in the Bible where it talks about a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And this is not a double portion of the Holy Spirit anyway here. So we're setting that aside. Can't be that one. That's, these are the things that Christians sort of argue about. What is this? What does it mean? Some would say it's the right of succession. So the, the right to su- succeed as the next prophet leader. We can go to Deuteronomy 21. And we do see this language. 21.17, Deuteronomy. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. So firstborn son is going to get a double portion. He's now the head of the family. He's going to take care of the rest of the family. He gets double the inheritance to do so. First Kings 19 as well. We see uh, this language of double portion again. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mehalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So not so much the, the exact words of double portion, but the idea of secession. Elisha is going to be the next prophet. So is that what Elisha is asking for? Is he saying, give me a double portion of your spirit, meaning make me the next leader like you? Um, see would be give me a better superior ministry to Elijah. I want to do double all that you did, Elijah. So that's what I'm asking of you. D, give me spiritual power beyond my own capabilities. So Elisha's just acknowledging under D, if we choose that, that he can't do it. He can't do it of his own power. He needs the Lord's help. He needs the Lord's help. So I think... Any prophet is going to agree with that, right? That's not a bad choice. That's not a bad choice. E combines them both. So with E, we get the, the best of both of these. F, special privileges as a prophetic leader. You know, <laughs> Give me special privileges. I, I want double what you had, Elijah, and my privileges. I want the best of the best of everything. So what am I going to go with? Normally, I don't like both answers, but I think both fits here. So I'm choosing E, which is what, Hector? B and D. See, I did these and went back and added another one, so it changed them. B and D, why? Well, it's double. It's a double portion. I need double what most people think I need. I need both the, the, the right to succeed, which has already been promised him by God. So, so pass that to me. 
but I also need power from the Spirit. I, I need the ability to do the things that Elisha did. And he does that right away, doesn't he, with the river. He hits the water, it parts. He can't do that of his own ability. That is the Lord working through him. So double portion of your spirit is not some special blessing of the Holy Spirit that anybody can give you today. This is a special blessing that God gave Elisha to follow up in Elijah's ministry. So that concludes Second Kings. So let's move now to Chronicles. Any questions on Second Kings? You guys got Second Kings all figured out? Who loves these historical books like Samuel Kings? Those are, those are a lot of fun. If you like to read history, biography, those books are good because it shows you bad and it shows you good. And there's a, a large contrast. But even if you like the historical books, you probably don't enjoy Chronicles as much. Why, why is Chronicles hard for us? A lot of genealogies, lists, hard names to pronounce. Yeah, a lot of hard names to pronounce, especially in the first nine chapters. Chronicles is not, uh, it's not preached on near as much as First and Second Samuel. Uh, Chronicles is more difficult for us. It's harder. Um, anytime we come across genealogies, it's harder. Uh, but let's look at First Chronicles. Just like we've already seen before, First and Second Samuel was one book in the Hebrew Bible. The Jews received it as one book. First and Second Kings, what do we have? One book. What do you think we're going to have with First and Second Chronicles? One book. It got divided later, and that's how we have it today in our Bibles. In Hebrew, the name is the words of the days. So the Hebrews often looked at the very first word, and that's what they called it. Remember, these titles weren't on there originally. Hey, pick up the scroll called the words of the days. Usually, when it gets translated into Greek, that's the Septuagint LXX, it sounds like something we're familiar with. So we get Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But here, it's even stranger. The things omitted. The things omitted. Any guesses to where that title would come from? Why do they call it the things omitted? Omitted from what? The things omitted from 2 Samuel and Kings. Or the second half of Samuel and Kings. There are things not mentioned there that are going to be in First and Second Chronicles. So we call it Chronicles because it chronicles. It's a historical chronicle of everything from Adam to the time they go into bondage in, uh, actually, until the 70 years of captivity is up. So it's just a history of Israel, specifically David's line, and what's happening with the temple worship. Now, who wrote it? We've had a lot of question marks on authors lately. First and Second Samuel, it's tough to say. First and Second Kings, hard to say. I like Ezra for this. A lot of people don't. But if you go to the very end of Second Chronicles... I think he has to have written some of it. Or he's just got a good copy that he uses when he starts Ezra. Uh, so go to Second Chronicles 36. And verse 22. So this is how it ends. The, the captivity's over and they're about to be released to go back. 
Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms, and so on. Now turn over next book, Ezra. First line of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms. You notice anything similar there? It's word for word the same. So either Ezra, because I do believe Ezra, and it's, it's pretty certain Ezra wrote the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's, it's pretty clear this is exactly how Second Chronicles ends. So either Ezra had a really good copy of it, and he's just picking up where it left off, or he wrote all of these books. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But it's okay. We don't have to know the author. It's inspired for over 2,000 years. It's been very clear. This is the word of God. When did these things happen? Well, we don't know when the book itself was written. If it's by Ezra, then we'll talk about Ezra's life in a few weeks. But it covers everything from Adam until they're released. So the grandsons of Zerubbabel around 500 B.C. So the book starts at creation, and it covers the history of the Davidic line and the priestly group all the way up to 500 B.C. All right, so how do these relate to the books we've just studied? How do these relate? Well, 1 Chronicles is going to match up with 2 Samuel. They're not word-for-word exact. That's why it's called the things omitted by the Greeks. They, they thought that there were some things that God wanted us to know that weren't in 2 Samuel. The second part of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, will parallel the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. But there are some differences. Mainly, Chronicles is going to focus on the south. There's not a lot of mention about what's going on in the north. This is written by, if it's not Ezra, then it's some other priestly author. It's some other author that was a priest who was concerned with David, who's concerned with the temple worship and the rebuilding of the temple. That's his focus. He wants people to know what happened in the south, in Judah. The more pure, we might say. It wasn't perfectly pure, but it was closer to doing what God had asked them to do, what God had told them to do. So what is the, what is the major difference? This is important because when you're reading these books, you're going to see some slight differences. What's the major difference? Well, there's a, there's a couple of features that distinguish Kings from Chronicles, or we might say 2 Samuel from Chronicles. In Kings, we get a political history of Israel, that's the north, and of Judah, that's the south. And it's written from a prophetic view and a moral viewpoint. So a prophet's probably writing it. And he's trying to make a point. This is wrong. This is good. These people followed God. These kings did not. This nation did not follow God. The South gives a religious history. It's not just going to tell us about who ruled and what they did, but it's also going to include the worship and more about the temple being built. And it's focused on David, as I said, 
and only Judah. That's the south. And it's written from a priestly or spiritual perspective. So that's, I think, why we have a hard time with it. Unless you really know Leviticus, maybe Deuteronomy. Chronicles is harder for us, not to mention all the genealogies in there. So again, ESV Study Bible has these nice charts. Here's some, here's some differences you need to consider. Especially David. The chronicler, whoever that is, he has a favorable view of David. He pretty much brushes David's sins aside. Not, not in a wrong way. It's just God's word. But he just doesn't emphasize them. Whereas 2 Samuel does. So Chronicles passes over David's sins against Uriah and Bathsheba, along with his ensuing family and political troubles. There are many chapters in 2 Samuel about what happened, what, what was the result of David's sin with Bathsheba. Uriah got murdered, basically murdered. The first child died that David and Bathsheba had. His sons rebelled. The kingdom split. All that's left out of Chronicles. Also, the Chronicle adds and expands David's activity for the temple. It, it considers more David's wars that help acquire the materials for the temple. So where did he get the materials? And it adds the census account that explains the choice of the temple site. So where do we get God's choice of the temple site? Remember at the end of First Chronicles, there's this plague and it's coming upon Israel because David took a census. Now we're going to come to whether Satan incited him to do that or God incited him to do that. But it was a sin. God punishes the people with a plague and David stops it with a sacrifice. As he sees this angel of death bringing the plague up the mountain, he says, we need to do a sacrifice right here. Build an altar. Let's sacrifice. I want to buy this field. And the guy says, okay, here you go. They do the sacrifice. The plague stops. That's where the temple gets built, Mount Zion. Also, there's extensive additions that focus on David's preparations for the temple and its personnel who's going to serve there. So David's sins are not focused so much on, and the temple has a bigger focus in Chronicles. So what's the theme of this book? Why, why, why is it there? What are we supposed to get out of it? God's view of David. Why is that important? Why is that important that we get the right view of David? The Davidic covenant, he's going to point to Christ in, in his reign, but also Christ comes from the line of David. The future Messiah is coming from the line of David. Now in our Bibles, it's not at the end of the Old Testament. Chronicles is not. In the Hebrew Bible, you know what the last book of their Old Testament, well, it's their only Testament, right? If, they're, if you're a Jew today, you go pick up a Jewish Bible, and it's in the original order that it would have been in Jesus' day. First and Second Chronicles, are the very last books. So you end with this idea of a temple and a reign that was so great with David, and you end with this idea of looking forward to a Messiah. Now we've moved it around a bit over time in our English Bibles and Greek. The Greeks can be to blame for that. Would the Messianic Christians have the Chronicles anyway? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I tend to think they would use an English Bible that's already been printed like ours. But if they, re if they read Hebrew, then yeah, they, they can grab one of those. So if I pull out my Hebrew Bible at home, the one I got in <laughs> seminary to study Hebrew, 
First and Second Chronicles is at the end. A lot of books are out of order, so you have a hard time even finding, not only everything backwards in the Hebrew Bible, because the language goes backwards compared to English. The books are out of order, so it takes a while to find, to find uh, the book you're looking for. So God's view of David is a theme, and the spiritual perspective of the genealogy and the reign of David. Let's expand that a bit more. Now, this is the theological, this is the academic definition, right? This is just stick in your head, God's view of David. That's easy to remember. Let's get a little more academic. Chronicles reminded the Israelites who were in Babylon. The guys and, and women hearing this are in Babylon under captivity. And they're hearing how Yahweh, that's the personal name of God, he had promised in the Davidic covenant to continue David's dynasty. So they're in captivity and they're saying, what has happened to us? How could God do this to us? We're so sad. What is going to happen in the future to our, to our land, to the promises God gave me? And he inspires this book or these books, First and Second Chronicles, to be written so they would remember what's happened and what's coming in the future. So the Davidic covenant, that's big. We've already looked at that in some detail in Second Samuel that it's going to continue in David's dynasty forever. It's going to be centered in Jerusalem with the temple of God and his glory. So this book offers hope for a future, a future king. We know him. His name is Christ, Jesus Christ. They didn't know his name, but they knew he was going to be called the Messiah. So it offers hope for a future king that will restore proper worship to the true God, Yahweh and give hope of salvation for Israel. We're, we're, we're in a land. We're, we're slaves in a land that we do not know. How is God ever going to fix this? And so the Chronicle writes this book, and he says, here's what happened from the very beginning, all the way through David, all the way up to where we're at now. Remember, God has promised a future king from the line of David. Sometimes we open the New Testament and we just think, how did these Jews know that a Messiah was coming? What scriptures did they look at? Well, this is one of the books they would have been hearing in synagogue. Synagogues were started during the captivity. They didn't have a temple. Teaching of the Bible wasn't being done, so they started these little groups, and they would teach the Bible there. They were called a synagogue. They brought those back to the land when they come back in Ezra and Nehemiah. They set up these buildings. They call them synagogues. And men come and learn the Bible. They teach their families. What is the Bible saying? There is a king coming. He will fix all of these problems. Not only that, he's going to bring a final salvation. The average Jewish person did, I think. They wanted to return. Uh, they, all their forefathers who'd worshipped the false gods had died off. They were ready to go back. Uh, by the time of Jesus, though, so something happens between the end of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus. And what happens is the Pharisees gain power. And the Pharisees, because of their time in Babylon, they had begun to add extra laws. And so they said, Look, we ended up in Babylon because we didn't obey God. 
We're going to make extra sure that never happens again. So if this is the word of God, they're going to draw a bigger circle around it. So you don't want to break the word of God? Well, we're going to make sure you can't even get close to breaking the word of God. So they start adding extra laws to protect you from even getting close to breaking the law of God. And that becomes legalism. So by Jesus' day, there are still people looking for the Messiah. But the Pharisees think they have it figured out. And they think the way to salvation is through obeying God's laws and all these other laws that they've made up. But that's not really found in the Old Testament. Judaism is something that's added after the Old Testament. We talked about this in our men's Bible study, but I'll draw you a little picture here. Let's see. Let's go back here. So this is the Bible. We'll call it the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. This is God's law. This is God's word. No one doubts that. But the Pharisees came along. It started in Babylon by word of mouth. And for hundreds of years, they're adding an extra layer of protection, as I just said. So they add this extra circle around it. Later, that's going to be written down. And it's called the Mishnah. So modern day Judaism doesn't just look at the Bible. They also look at the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is all the rabbis' interpretations of the Bible, of the Old Testament. So you don't just say, what does Moses say? But what happened in Jesus' day? We've heard it said. And Jesus says, you've heard it said this. And the rabbis say this. And they're challenging Jesus with all the rabbis' interpretation. Well, those are going to be written down in 200 AD. It's called the Mishnah. Well, that's not enough, because what do these rabbis even mean? We've got to come up with another layer to interpret what these guys mean. So we come up with another layer, and around 500 AD, and that's called the Gemara. You know what that is? That's interpretations to help you figure out what the rabbis meant in the Mishnah. So you need the Gemara to understand what the Mishnah said, so you can understand what the rabbis said about the Old Testament, who help us all to understand what God said. So that's modern-day Judaism. It's not just the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's holy word. That's pure. If a Jew followed the Old Testament rightly before Christ, then that, that's fine. The problem is all these interpretations get added, so people are drifting into legalism. Is that helpful? Did y'all do that in a women's Bible study? Okay, yeah. I think that's really helpful right there. Yeah, this whole thing right here. Um, let me draw another color here. The Mishnah and the Gemara come together, and, and that's called the Talmud. So it's Talmudic Judaism. Talmudic Juda- Judaism looks to all of these things as their basis for what they believe. There's liberal Judaism. They don't, they don't, they don't look at this. It's like liberal Christianity. They just do what they want. All right. Outline, I just broke it down into two major points here. First nine chapters, focus on the genealogies. From Adam all the way through David to the last person that's of the line of kings in the captivity. Zerubbabel's grandsons. And then the second part, the major part of the book, of First Chronicles is the reign of David, the righteous reign of David. Again, focusing not on his sins, but his righteousness. Not to whitewash David. Second Samuel's already been written. We don't need another book 
talking about his sins. We need a book to give us hope, a book that's inspired by God to focus on what he did right, what David did right, and so we can look forward to a coming king like David. Second Samuel's already been written. They already knew what that book said. Hopefully. Key verses. Let's go to 11.2. First Chronicles 11.2. Let's just start in the very beginning to kind of get an overview of these genealogies. And I'll pick on somebody by asking them to read all these hard names. That's what we do in our family. In family worship, we're doing one of these Old Testament books. And some kid, you know, they're kind of being prideful. And I'll say, don't make fun of your brother who can't read. You read this passage. And then they have fun, you know. We get the little babies trying to say these names. That's really fun. I got to get there myself, though. All right, so First Chronicles is just a genealogy. The beginning is, first word's Adam. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, uh, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, sons of Jephthah. And it goes all the way through. You get to verse 28. Now we're talking about the sons of Abraham. So it's not all mankind. We're going to take that funnel down to just Abraham's line because that's where God would bring the blessing. Then the 12 sons of Jacob in chapter 2. Just looking at your headings in your Bible there. By chapter 3, we're getting to the family of David. So narrowing down of all the descendants of Abraham, we're going to go through the line of Judah to David. And then chapter 4, Hur and Asher. And then descendants of Simeon, Reuben. So working not just on David's line, but now talking about some of the other tribes of Israel. What happened to these tribes? We have the priestly line starting in chapter 6. The sons of Levi, they were Gershon, Kohath, Merari, sons of Kohath. It goes all the way down through Moses and Aaron, continues all the way through the priestly line. Chapter 7 goes back to the tribes of Israel. Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali. Naphtali only gets one sentence. Look at that, 7.13. Sons of Naphtali were Jehaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalom. The sons of Bilhah. So by then, even Naphtali, I think, is a a very small tribe. But Benjamin, chapter 8, is small as well. They get a whole chapter there. And then Saul. Saul comes from Benjamin. So Saul's line is mentioned. Then chapter 9, the people of Jerusalem. And it goes from there into David's uh, line and David's reign, really, in chapter 10. So let's look at 11.2. It's the key verse. In times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people. So he's talking to David here. You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. That's, that's the promise that was given to David. Even before Saul died, even before Saul was removed, even before David became the official king. God had already appointed him king. And people used to follow David even before they recognized him fully as king because God had blessed him. God had chosen him. So that takes us over to chapter 17 where we see the Davidic covenant once again. 17, 11 through 14. 
Well, we'll just start where the paragraph breaks. So kind of in right after 10, there's this new paragraph that starts in my Bible. It says, More, moreover, moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. Not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a line. God is going to build a, a house, a family, a genealogy for you. When your days are fulfilled, David, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons. So there's going to be a descendant who comes from you, not just a direct son, the next sons or anybody that follows you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house. Now some say this is Solomon, because Solomon builds the temple. But listen, and I will establish his throne forever. So what is house? Right, right previous to this, the context of house is family line, our family. I will build a, a family line for you. Then there's a, one of your sons coming, and it says, he will build for me a house. Solomon builds the temple, but he doesn't reign forever. Who's going to reign forever? Christ. And what kind of house does he build? We've just been looking at this in Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2, he builds a temple of God. But it's different, right? It's different. It's a spiritual temple built by each believer being added to the church. So Christ is going to come. He's going to build me a spiritual house. I will be his father. He shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. That's Saul. Saul lost the kingdom. This person coming is going to be king forever, and he's never going to lose that kingdom. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So he will be ruling amidst my people, my house, from Jerusalem even. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan, the prophet here, spoke all these words to David. Now, do you remember when we looked at 2 Samuel, what was the, what was the question with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. Here's a little quiz from a few weeks ago. What's the issue with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel? Who knows? Whether he's talking about Solomon or Christ or switching back and forth. Because in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, there's this little line about before he can even eat curds and honey, if he sins, I will forgive him, that kind of language which is hard to reconcile with Christ. But you notice here, there's nothing about that. So I think in 1 Chronicles, it's very clear to me, this is the Messiah. I also believe 2 Samuel is pointing to the Messiah. And if you want to go back and listen to my class, I'm, I make a case there that some have made that it's not, he's going to sin and I'll forgive him. But if, if he even was to commit something like a sin, I would not be like Saul and throw the kingdom away from him. So it's more hypothetical, I think, in 2 Samuel. Not saying that it's going to be Solomon, but Christ. Key people. Same as 2 Samuel. We have David, second king of Israel, son of Jesse, man after God's own heart. We have Absalom. He's the one who rebels. Third son of David, he revolts. He avenged his sister who was raped. And he kills his brother who did it. And he was eventually killed by Joab. Joab's David's nephew, commander of David's army, kind of a rascal. He killed Abner, Saul's major general. Hithophel, 
There's a name for you. You can name your next kid or grandkid, Ahithophel. Counselor David, defected with Absalom. God made his counsel foolish. He hanged himself. And then Nathan, the prophet, the one who rebukes David for his sins. When's the Davidic covenant come? It comes when David repents. When David repents over the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah, he repents. His child dies, but he, he feels that sorrow. He, feels, he, he truly is repentant. And so God comes to him, he sends a message to the prophet and restores David's spirit. He gives him good news that his line will last forever. Only one commentary this time that I recommend for you to get some help if you want to study this on your own. This is the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series. It's a good series in general. I don't normally talk about it, but it's, it's a little books. It's helpful if you're going to read more on First and Second Chronicles. Because it's not a book that's preached a lot or taught a lot, there's not a lot of good commentaries out there on Chronicles. Okay, interpretive issues or problems. Now these, again, are not problems with the Bible. These are problems we have with the Bible, trying to figure out what's being said, but it's not actual problems in God's mind. He inspired it to be written. These are problems. We have what's going on in these verses. So we're going to compare 1 Chronicles 25. I need somebody to read that. Hector, can you read 1 Chronicles 25? And then I need a reader for 2 Samuel 21.19. Who would like to read that? Greg? 2 Samuel 21.19. So why don't you read that one first, actually, Greg, the Second Samuel. Then Hector can read First Chronicles. So I wasn't trying to pick on you by reading hard names, but... Who, who did he kill? Say again. He killed Goliath. That's interesting. How did he kill Goliath? I thought David already killed Goliath. So who is this Goliath guy? That's the question, right? Who did he actually kill? We'll have three choices. But we come to First Chronicles. What does it say, Hector? So very similar, except for, what does it say? It names him. It doesn't call him Goliath, does it? Yeah, it's Lami, the brother of Goliath. So who did this guy, the same guy mentioned in Chronicles and Second Samuel, Elhanan, who did he kill? Because David supposedly already killed Goliath. So did David not kill Goliath? That would be one answer there. Yeah, I guess Goliath gets to die twice in the Bible. That's, that's what B is saying. That If you choose B, uh, you're saying that Elhanan killed the Goliath that we know in the Bible as Goliath. That really causes problems, though, because who did David kill? Did Goliath get resurrected? But if we just, if we just had 2 Samuel, it would be confusing, wouldn't it? Or is this like the chronicler says, is this just the brother of Goliath? Or our last choice would be another giant named Goliath. Maybe Goliath is just a name, like we say giant. Maybe that's a, a noun that becomes the name of whoever's the giant in those, in those days. If you're nine foot tall, you're a Goliath. We kind of use that, that word Goliath today uh, like that. It's a Goliath. It's huge. So what, what's the choice here? 
What do you think I'm going to choose? Three sounds good. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with A. Why? Because Second Chronicles is written later, and it clears up in my mind. You can disagree. This is not a you don't you don't go form a new denomination. You know, don't take don't take your view, Frank, and go start a new denomination. You know, there, there's this denomination that believes in you know the, the the Goliath, and this one's another giant named Goliath. This is not something you split ways over, but it's an interpretive question we have to answer. I think Second Chronicles is, is filling it in. Some say that Second Samuel passage, uh, you remember we had some issues with Samuel, uh, the manuscript of Samuel that we have, the best ones today. They have a few issues in the manuscript, and some say it dropped out. The word brother dropped out. I don't know if I'd say that. I just know that First Chronicles says he's the brother, it's the same Elhanan in both cases. So, you know, it could be A and C, right? So, so in Samuel, they're using this kind of language. And in Chronicles, it's clear that it's the brother. So, either way, I'm just telling you, I, I would stick with First Chronicles. Here's a good theological one. I told you, this is not so much theology, but we get into theology. This is a great passage on God's sovereignty. So 1 Chronicles, turn with me to 1 Chronicles 21.1. Whenever somebody, let's say you believe in God's sovereignty, which I hope you do. I really believe in God's sovereignty, that he controls all things, decreed all things, that he sovereignly elects, that he chooses, that he rules over everything. This is a great passage to show somebody God's sovereignty. So 1 Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David's going to take that census. Remember that I told you that starts, it starts a plague because God said you shall not number his people. Why? why? Why does he not want the kings to number the people? We can guess. I mean, it doesn't say specifically, but what? Yeah, we're so strong. Look at all, look at this manpower we have. Look at this military we have. And so it's a sin. Now, there is some times where God tells them to be numbered. But he told the kings not to do it. But David does it. So who caused him to do it? Who tempted him? Who incited him to do it? Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Go back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24.1 is the same incident. Now, again... The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king tells Joab to go do it. So who told, who incited David? God or Satan? Yes, somebody said yes. How could, that, how, how could that be? One says God, one says Satan. Or not specifically God, it says what? The anger of the Lord. That's a little clue there. The anger of the Lord. But the anger of the Lord comes from the Lord. So there are two options. Yahweh, God, personal name of God. He permits Satan to incite David because that's part of God's plan. To bring judgment upon Israel for their sin. Or B, it's really not talking about Satan at all. It's just a human 
adversary. So if you go to 1 Kings, these passages I've listed, it says that uh, a certain man was raised up to be an adversary against the king, against the king in Israel. Well, Satan is a definite name for the devil. Satanos in, in Greek, and I forget how you pronounce it. And It's pretty similar in Hebrew. It's a specific name. And when the word Satan is used, that's speaking of the devil. So we can't just say that's a human adversary. Satan is inciting David. He is tempting David. David takes the bait. But Satan's really working on David to make this happen. But in Samuel, the writer is not so much trying to let David off the hook. The anger of the Lord did this. The anger of the Lord. In Chronicles, well, it was Satan. It's true. It's both. But who's in control? Who decrees all things? Who has Satan on a leash? God does. Martin Luther used to say that Satan is God's Satan. Meaning God created him and God knew he would rebel and God knew all these things would happen. And that's all in God's glorious righteous plan. Satan is doing what he thinks he's permitted to do and God is allowing it whenever it brings glory to God. We'll find this throughout the Bible, won't we? Remember when Jesus prayed for Peter, what did he say? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I prayed for you so that you will turn. Meaning, Satan is going to try to sift you. You are going to drift away, but I prayed for you, Peter, so that you'll turn around. Which means God permitted Satan to sift Peter, and you could say all the apostles, when Christ was crucified. Who killed Jesus? The Romans and the Jews conspired together to kill Jesus. What does Peter say in Acts? That was God's predestined plan. So God predestined that evil people would take his son and and kill his son? Yeah, that's what it says in Acts. Sometimes if you haven't seen that before, it kind of blows your mind. But God is holy. God is righteous. God does not sin. There's no darkness in him. But he permits Satan to do certain things. He's on a leash. He can only do so much. But God does permit him to. And in fact, I'll just refer you there because we don't have time to read it. But Job 1 and 2. Job 1 and 2. What happens to Job? Job gets devastated, right? His family, his livestock, his wealth, his physical body is tortured and suffering. Satan has to get permission from God. And who mentions Job's name in the first place to Satan? God does. Does that make God evil? No. Does all of our suffering ultimately come from God's sovereign decree? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. In fact, when Job is suffering and his wife says, curse God and, you know, just do your own thing, what does he say? Do we not accept blessings from the Lord as much as we accept suffering? He never said it was Satan. Job didn't. He said it was God. God has done this. He's trying to show me something. Now Job spends the whole book trying to figure out what that is, but he figures it out in the end when God shows up. So my point is, we shouldn't struggle with this if we understand that God is sovereign over Satan. It's not like there's Satan and he's equal to God and they're battling it out like culture tells us and the movies tell us and all these strange books and stuff tell us. No, God, sovereign over all things, everything else, submits to God. Satan and the demons have their own devices and they're trying to do things. And sometimes if it's part of God's plan, he lets them do what they want for a bit. So that ultimately, the cause of that is God's glory. 
Ultimately, God wants to bless those whom he saved. Sometimes Satan does damage and is allowed to do certain things to us so that we will glorify God more. All right, well, that's, uh, that's it for... So I'm going with A, by the way. Sorry, if you didn't know that already. That's it for First Chronicles. Next week, we look at Second Chronicles. And then we're on to Ezra and Nehemiah the following week. So let me close in prayer. If you have questions for me about this, please come and see me right after class. God, we love your word. We love even First Chronicles, a book that's often forgotten and not read, but help us to read it. Excite us about your word. It is holy. It is perfect. It is righteous. We can learn so much from it. And let us not forget that these historical books are there for a reason. Even the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that, that the Old, the Old Testament is written to teach us. It's written to teach us not to stumble, not to fall, not to go into sin. So help us to see that and to read and read and read our Bibles. Amen.